This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 27, Diving Deep into Diabetes. Despite sharing a name, type 1 and type 2 diabetes have surprisingly little in common. Let's explore their similarities and their many differences. And we brought this up because we often have people go on our our chat on our website and say, hey, do you guys work with type 1 diabetics? And uh, we get lots of questions about type 1 diabetes and uh, insulin resistance and its relationship to to both uh, type 1 and type 2. And Ben, talk about 1.5 and gestational. If you oh, yeah, too. no, we'll do, we'll do it. So, oh, yeah, guys, so I, I'd called this, this classroom session, I'd called a deep dive in diabetes. And then it was essentially just highlighting what I want to do in the time we'll take now is to discuss the similarities and the differences across diabetes. And there's more than just type 1 and type 2, but that's a, a logical place to start. But before I even go there, let's just define the word diabetes. Diabetes means excess urine production. That's the, that is the origin of the term diabetes or, or to flow through. And so that, is, that was the main observation historically. And even to this day, if someone has diabetes, 
they're urinating a lot. Now, diabetes, as we're discussing it in a metabolic sense, <clears throat> usually will have this adjective there, or, or actually other way around. It'll be diabetes mellitus. And mellitus refers to the fact that there's glucose in this urine, that the person's making a lot of urine and that it's enriched with glucose. Now, mellitus means like sweet or honey flavored, and that's a bit of an exaggeration. Glucose isn't really sweet tasting, but it would certainly taste different than normal urine. So diabetes mellitus refers to the fact that the person's making a lot of urine and there's a lot of glucose in it. There's a different type of diabetes altogether called diabetes insipidus. That's, that's an endocrine disorder with um, with antidiuretic hormone. That's not what we're talking about. Now, with diabetes mellitus, um, remember the diabetes means the excess production of urine. Uh, and that is a direct result of a lot of glucose being in the blood. An earlier metabolic classroom, in an earlier classroom, we spoke about different glucose transporters in the body. And I talked about how there are um, transporters in the kidneys called SGLT2. And these are transporters that when, when the glucose is getting filtered from the blood into what would become urine, normally all of that glucose gets pulled back into the blood through these, these SGLT2s, these transporters. However, when blood glucose levels get too high, and this is usually around 200 milligrams per deciliter, we overwhelm the kidney's ability to reabsorb that glucose. And so the glucose that gets filtered into the urine stays in the urine because we just don't have the room to bring all that glucose back in. And now that glucose stays in the urine and it starts pulling water with it. And so that main manifestation of diabetes, the increased urine production, is a direct result of too much glucose. And so that's really been the main drive because of that historical view um, that, that we, why we look at glucose, why we look at diabetes as glucose diseases. Now, I want to try to challenge that a little bit, but one other defense of looking at glucose as a marker of diabetes is that it's just so darn easy to measure. This was something that went, we've been able to measure it of, um, since the kind of early, mid-1900s from, from blood, and then it's so rapidly progressed. Glucose is so easy to measure that now we can just measure it in a handheld little glucometer and anyone can do it at any time. And then it even progressed to being able to wear devices that can measure your glucose constantly. So that's why glucose continues to be viewed as the main marker of diabetes. But that is why we've gotten in part into the problem we've come to. And to help kind of um, show the problem and to sort of pivot into the more relevant variable, um, which is insulin, I want to actually read a section of a manuscript that I, when I first read this, probably um, 15 years ago, uh, and I think I was a postdoctoral fellow at the time, it, it just blew my mind. It was such a, a wonderful way of looking at this problem. So this is a manuscript in uh, by, by a man named Dennis McGarry, um, who was a biochemist at um, UT Southwestern. And the name of this manuscript is, what if Minkowski had been a Gusick, an alternative angle on diabetes? So a Gusick meaning he can't taste anything. So let's, let me just read this. Humor me, guys, just for a moment. It'll take maybe a minute to read through. It's just so elegant and beautiful. And I want people to be as impressed with it as I was. It is of interest to reflect back on two of the generally accepted landmark discoveries in diabetes research and to consider how they've influenced our thinking. Legend has it that on a momentous day in 1889, Oscar Minkowski noticed that urine collected from his pancreatectomized dogs 
attracted an inordinate number of flies. So he'd remove, he'd made these dogs diabetic by taking out their pancreas so they couldn't make insulin. He is then said by some to have tasted the urine and to have been struck by its sweetness. From this simple but astute observation, he established for the first time that the pancreas produced some entity essential for control of the blood sugar concentration, which when absent resulted in diabetes mellitus. A second milestone was reached some 30 years later when Frederick Banting and his colleagues identified the active pancreatic, pancreatic principle as insulin. Thus, in 1929, the concept of an insulin glucose axis as a central component of fuel homeostasis came into being. So, so I, I'm, I'm not quite done yet, but let me just pause and, and sort of translate that into common speak. So what he's saying basically is that one guy had noticed that if you remove the pancreas, you make glucose levels go up dramatically, and then polyuria ensues. These other guys, this other group, noticed a few decades later that there's something from the pancreas called insulin, that when insulin is present, glucose stays normal. When insulin is absent, glucose goes crazy. Now, back to this reading, and it's almost done. Now, let us suppose that Minkowski had lacked a sense of taste, but had a good nose. Presumably, instead of detecting sugar in the diabetic urine, he would have smelled the acetone. On, on the breath or in the urine. Although this might have left him even more bemused or confused as to the swarm of flies, he would surely have concluded that removal of the pancreas causes fatty acid metabolism to go awry. Extending this hypothetical scenario, the major conclusion of Banting's work might have been that the preeminent role of insulin is to control fat metabolism. So just think about that for one quick sec. Basically what he's saying is that if this scientist had not been able to have a sense of taste, but rather could smell perfectly fine, he would have in these diabetic dogs noticed the acetone and would have known, well, that's a result of, of fatty acid metabolism, namely ketogenesis. And so we wouldn't have been thinking about insulin as a controller of glucose. We would have been thinking about insulin as a controller of fat metabolism. And so this introduces this, uh, this other idea that as much as we've looked at diabetes as the glucose disease, and that is the term that all of these problems have in common, type 1, type 2, and all the others I'll go over, you, uh, to a degree, we, we would be probably more accurate looking at them as insulin problems and then looking at and then wondering what insulin is doing in these bodies to change the way the body is using fuel. Now, that uh, having introduced insulin as the other variable, let me, let me explain in a, in a way why it's taken insulin longer to, become, to come to the forefront. As I mentioned in my book, I, I sort of poke fun at glucose and say glucose is the sidekick in the story that thinks it's the hero. Insulin's the actual hero of the story, or that's the character that we want to understand to truly understand the differences in diabetes. Because if you look at type 1 and type 2 diabetes, all they have in common is that their glucose levels are high. That is it. And how interesting that that's how we're defining the disease, when in reality, their diseases, if you look at their insulin levels, they are totally different. And so I'll, I'll dive deep into insulin now. So in the case of type 1 diabetes, that person has very, very high glucose because they have an autoimmune destruction of their beta cells. Those are the cells of the pancreas that create insulin. So their own immune system their, their, their T cells, these, these um, immune cells are, are acting as if the, the beta cell is foreign and thus they are coming and destroying it as if it was, a, was a, an infection. It was some bacteria or something. And so they don't make insulin and thus their glucose goes through the roof. And on, in contrast, on the other side, we have the person with type 2 diabetes. 
in type 2 diabetes, insulin, at least at the beginning, is always elevated. But So that's exactly opposite from type 1 diabetes. But their insulin is so inefficient, it's so compromised in, in its actions at muscle that the muscle can't pull in the glucose when insulin's trying to tell it to. And muscle consumes roughly 80% of the glucose when someone's eaten something. And so the glucose, the insulin's really high, but insulin isn't working. And so the glucose goes high as well. Now, this um, is often terribly confused. And I do mean terribly because the consequences on the individual are terrible when these ideas are put into practice. So the average clinical view of type 2 diabetes has no regard for the insulin, and it only pays attention to the glucose. And again, there's a historic precedent for doing that, and it's so easy to measure the glucose. But the tragedy in that paradigm is that as this person has been progressing towards type 2 diabetes, the glucose stays normal every year, but they're gaining a little more weight, their blood pressure is going up, maybe they have some infertility issues, and behind the scenes, the insulin has been climbing. It's double, then it's triple, then it's quadruple, and then it can get five times or more higher than what it used to be. And it's only when the body is swimming in a sea of insulin, it has become so resistant to its own insulin that now the glucose starts to climb. And then we detect the problem based on conventional clinical markers. But the tragedy, of course, in that paradigm is that we could have detected it decades before the glucose ever changed. And then to make matters even worse, there's this myth that when the glucose has risen in the type 2 diabetic, that the insulin has become deficient. And that is such a tragedy because overwhelmingly what happens in the type 2 diabetic is that insulin has gone up and it's become insulin staying up. We're becoming really resistant to insulin. Now the glucose is climbing. And then we exaggerate this glucose rise because insulin production drops down, but it never goes back down to where it was before the problem started. It is always often several times higher than it was before this whole decades long process began. That, but, but we will say commonly it's stated your insulin is insufficient to control your glucose. Well, that's a relative term. And so they correct that relative insufficiency by saying, well, your glucose is high. And yeah, sure, your insulin is still higher than it should be. But let's just push your insulin up even higher. And they do by giving the person um, insulin injections or insulin secretagogues, drugs that will force the beta cells to make more insulin. And sure enough, while pushing insulin to a super physiological level, the glucose does come down to normal and they die more. If this really was a problem of too much glucose, then correcting the glucose through dr- by pushing the insulin up even higher should correct the problem. And they live a long, healthy life. And it doesn't happen. We know that the more aggressively you push up insulin in a type 2 diabetic, even though they have perfect glucose as a result, they get fatter and they die. They're three times more likely to die from heart disease. They're two times more likely to die from cancer, two times more likely to get Alzheimer's disease. And numerous other problems are going to follow this. So there's nothing, there's nothing good. In fact, a meta-analysis of all the available studies looking at insulin treatment in type 2 diabetics noted that there's no improvement in clinical outcomes. And in fact, there's a trend for adverse outcomes when you're treating a type 2 diabetic with insulin. But that's the problem. We look at diabetes type 2 as a glucose disease, and so we have no regard for pushing the insulin up even higher. Um, Now, 
I described the progression of type 2 diabetes. Hopefully, I've made it clear what the difference is between type 1 and type 2, and that is insulin. Whereas type 1 diabetes is a disease of too little insulin, type 2 diabetes is a disease of too much. Now, there are other variables playing into that. I'm not saying it's only too much insulin, but that is what's happening with regards to insulin. So putting more insulin in the system isn't going to solve the problem. I always use this analogy, and it's just so good, so I can't help myself. Giving a type 2 diabetic insulin is like giving an alcoholic another glass of wine and hoping it will solve the problem. To, at a fundamental level, the excess insulin is what's driving the insulin resistance in type 2 diabetes. Now, let's, so that's type 1 and that's type 2. Let's sort of describe some of the characters that don't quite fit within those two. I'll start with the easiest one, and that is gestational diabetes. Gestational diabetes is a diabetes that onsets during pregnancy. And it's easy to understand where that fits when a person appreciates that pregnancy is a state of insulin resistance. The body is supposed to become insulin resistant. It is one of the truly rare instances of physiological insulin resistance. That's a term that is often thrown around, and very often it's thrown around inappropriately. So in the case of pregnancy, the woman's insulin levels are going up, which you always have in any state of insulin resistance, and she's becoming, it's harder for her to clear the glucose. So we have those two, these two phenomena going um, concurrently. That is an insulin resistance during pregnancy. And in some women, it gets so bad that now her glucose levels reach a point that it's considered diabetic. So that's gestational diabetes. And it's easy to see that that fits very solidly in the camp of type 2 diabetes. And that would almost be a better term. It would be something like type 2 diabetes of pregnancy. Now, thankfully, a woman usually when the baby's born, that pregnancy-induced insulin resistance goes away, and especially it goes even faster if she breastfeeds, and then the, the problem has solved itself. But her risk of getting type 2 diabetes later in life is significantly higher if she had gestational diabetes, because again, that's what it is. It is essentially type 2 diabetes during pregnancy, and so she should very much, my, my call to her would be an, an encouragement to um, almost behave as if she's pre-diabetic, um, even though the gestational diabetes has resolved usually. Now, some other um, blurry space here. Another one is called double diabetes. Double diabetes is type 1 diabetes, so an actual autoimmune destruction of the beta cells. So it's type 1, because if it's, if it's autoimmune destruction of the insulin-producing beta cells, it is type 1. So this is a person who starts to become so insulin-resistant that they have to give themselves much, much more insulin. And despite giving themselves several times more insulin than they used to, they're still having a very hard time controlling their glucose. Their glucose is always staying up. So it's called double diabetes but because the person started as type 1 and became kind of type 2. And the progress of that is is as simple as it is in the non-type 1 diabetic who becomes type 2 diabetic and insulin resistant. It's because they're eating so much foods that are spiking their insulin all the time, they become insulin resistant and then type 2 diabetic. Well, the same thing is happening with the type 1 diabetic. This is a person who's been told that they can eat whatever they want as long as they cover it with their insulin. And so they're indulging in all these 
refined starches that of course are always coming with fat as well, which amplifies the problem, but, but they're wanting to control their glucose. And so they're giving themselves the appropriate amount of insulin they need to control their glucose. But all of that insulin starts driving the insulin resistance. And now they end up getting kind of like a type two diabetic. So that's double diabetes where it started as type one. And now they have kind of features of both. Somewhere going kind of in the opposite direction is the person who has type 1.5. Now, the actual etiology or the progression of type 1.5 isn't really clear, so, but I'll just go with the standard view of it. Um, this is a person who is insulin resistant and they get type 2 diabetes. So they have high insulin and they have high glucose. But then over time, usually this is decades later, they start to actually destroy their beta cells through an autoimmune reaction. So there is this actual attack and destruction of the beta cells. And so they go from having had type 2, which is a dietary problem, to type 1, which is an autoimmune problem. And another word for type 1.5, which is what I'm describing, is essentially, is another term for it is LADA. And I don't mean the old Soviet Union crappy cars, um, but this is LADA. Latent autoimmune diabetes of adults. That's just a clever way of saying it's type 1 diabetes, but it didn't start when it typically does, which is teenage years. It started it when they're 50s and their 60s. So this is just an autoimmune disease that took much longer to settle in. So it started as type 2 because of their unhealthy eating and diet, um, well, lifestyle. And then it became type 1 simply because there was some trigger that activated their autoimmune to destroy their beta cells. And so they do become insulin dependent, just like a true type one. Um, but of course you can control how much insulin you take, but maybe that's an idea I'll end with. And then the, the, the final one I wanna mention is one called MODY or M-O-D-Y, mature onset diabetes of the youth. This, that's a terrible name. <clears throat> it, it, this one should essentially just be called pure genetic diabetes. In MODY, usually this is a, there are different types. Um, but this is unlike type 1, although it can look like type 1. In type 1, it's the autoimmune destruction. Our immune system is destroying our beta cells. And so the beta cells just are, are always getting wrecked. In, in Modi, it's a genetic deficiency in the production of insulin. And so when I teach this idea to my students, I'll say in type 1 diabetes, it's like we're destroying the very factories that are producing insulin. In Modi, the factory is there. In other words, the beta cells are there. It's just that we're missing one single piece of machinery in this big machine, in, in the factory. There's something wrong in, on the conveyor belt. And so we just can't make the insulin. But everything else is there. The lights are on. The machines are running. The factory is there. There's just one single genetic mutation that is preventing the factory from actually producing its one product, insulin in this case. Now, the nice thing about Modi is that it can be treated, it is not treated with insulin. This is why it's so important for a type one diabetic to confirm that they actually have type one diabetes by doing an antibody test. So essentially you could have someone presenting to the clinic and they have all the signs of type one diabetes. They're losing weight, they're urinating, they're in ketoacidosis and, and their glucose levels are just through the roof. It's easy, the low hanging fruit is to say, oh, this person has type one diabetes and then just put them on insulin therapy. But if a person has Modi, then they don't need insulin therapy. It's usually one single oral pill. 
um, an insulin secretagogue, like I mentioned earlier, which is so counterproductive in type 2 diabetes, it becomes the medication of choice in someone with Modi because you can take this little pill like a sulfonylurea and it's enough to kind of fill that gap in the factory. That one mach that machine producing insulin was lacking one little cog. This medication puts that cog back in. In other types of Modi, because there's a uh, there's about 13 different types of mutations someone can have, you can overcome it entirely by dietary changes. Something like a low-carb diet is enough that the genetic deficiency just means they can't produce much insulin, but they can produce some in some of these instances. And so if you just lower your need for insulin because you're cutting your carbs, you've solved the problem. Now, one of the things about Modi that I will just end that sentiment with is that if someone sees diabetes starting in essentially a newborn, a baby that is only eating breast milk, then it is not type 1 diabetes. It is almost always going to be Modi because type 1 diabetes won't start until the baby or the child is eating food, which just is reflective of the environmental trigger that is so essential. Um, and, but with Modi, because it's an actual genetic disease the child is born with, it's typically something that will manifest itself very early on. Now, there are different types of Modi, but if, if someone notices is a newborn, and they say my newborn has type 1 diabetes. No, that is very, very unlikely. They probably have Modi, and that's good news because then it is just an oral medication. Take that one pill once a day, and you're good to go. Now, the theme throughout all of this, and this will be the sentiment that I end on, it is that if you are trying to control your glucose or, and you're, or you're trying to control your insulin, then put less glucose into the system. Whether you are a type 2, whether you are a type 1, there are clinical studies uh, or case reports in the case of type 1 to show the wild efficacy of low-carb diets in both of those situations. Yes, even in type 1, what happens in the case of type 1, and there's a case report, and I encourage anyone to look up the work of a, of a pediatric endocrinologist named Jake Kushner. He's, he's been a huge advocate of the role of low-carb diets. But essentially, someone who has true type 1 diabetes, they may be afraid of a low-carb diet because of their ketones. And, and a type 1 diabetic does need to be wary of their ketones. But all that happens is they have to give themselves dramatically less insulin than they used to. And I know I'll look forward to Rich and Carly sharing some of what they've seen with coaching clients in that regard. But that's it's these are published reports of significant improvements in insulin dosing and in in uh, normal glucose levels throughout, you know, entire days whereas the typical type 1 diabetic is basically never ending is it's always chasing normal glucose. It's too high or it's too low and it's rare it's very rarely normal. Um, so again, regardless of the situation, whether it is Modi or 1.5 or double diabetes or gestational diabetes or type 2 or type 1, if you control the glucose coming into the system, you're going to improve dramatically um, the disorder. You're either going to just have a significant improvement, like in the case of type 1, or in the case of type 2, you're going to solve the problem entirely. You'll essentially cure the disease. Wow. Cool. Jack, Jack, I've got like a thousand questions. So do I. Yeah, I know. Okay, well, let, let's uh, let's take a few of those, and we've got a thousand questions coming in from viewers as well. Right. So go ahead, uh, Carly and Rich. Take let's take one or two of those. So Ben, I got a couple of things I want to talk to you about. So on, on the one point five, I've got a client that I'm working with that you know when she and she's super fit. She's she's I mean I mean ultra marathon or super fit. She's got this one point five. They wanted to put her on insulin. She denied it. 
And so as she started to work through our program, um, she's not taking any insulin or any medication at all. Her blood glucose since she's been started is starting to drop her average. So she's, she's on a CGM and it started like at about 130 and now it's like at like 95 and her ketones wow. hover around 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8. Is she producing more beta cells? That's why that's coming down or what's going on there? Yeah. So I, well, I, I don't, I can't say, of course, if she is, if it is really, uh, you know, an actual progression back or not back, but towards type one and it's the autoimmune destruction, then my guess is that it's her insulin need now is so low in the midst of a low carb diet that the little bit that she's continuing to make from whatever beta cells are remaining is enough to solve the problem. That that would be my guess. Not that she's growing back new beta cells. Now, let me just say something very wacky. Um, (laughs) But, but there is significant evidence in humans uh, as correlation. And then there's true causal evidence in rodents. I'd mentioned a moment ago that, that you don't develop type one until you've started eating foods. Um, And, I hate to say this because I know it's so cliche. People with gluten sensitivities or, or celiac disease are over 20 times more likely to develop type 1 diabetes. And that is, these are kinds of 20, 20 times. Uh, th- th- those, are, those are numbers you just don't see in human populations. So this goes, and in rodents, when you have mice that are type 1 diabetic mice, um, if you cut all gluten out of their foods, they don't develop it. Uh, so I, 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 again, I hate, I know this is going to generate a lot of angst or a lot of pleasure, depending on what side of the camp people are when it comes to gluten. I, honest to goodness, try to be quite um, indifferent. I don't think gluten is the whore of all the earth um, that Isaiah was talking about. Um, but, but there's no question, there's no question that when it comes to an autoimmunity, like type 1 and maybe even like type 1.5, there's an environmental trigger that goes into this. There's no question. That's beyond debate. There's always an environmental trigger. There's a genetic predisposition. You know, it's a person's body is, hey, look, you have a bit of a heightened immune system. It might start attacking itself, but there's always something that pushes it over the edge. There's no question um, that to in many people, gluten is going to be what pulls that trigger. So to come back to your client, and, and please everyone in listening, uh, no, I'm speculating here. I wonder whether maybe some of it is perhaps a dampening of the immune system because when you go low carb, you go low gluten, whether you intend to cut the gluten or not. And I, I just wonder the degree to which her immune system is kind of easing up a little bit and giving the beta cells a little bit of a break. Interesting. Right. What what have you seen um, as far as like GMO crops and and glyphosate, all these chemicals that we're spraying in yeah. that trigger? Have you seen? Because the last 90 miles of the Mississippi River shows the most diabetes. If you look at a map, it's where all the all the runoff from all these crops are. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Um, that's certainly something. So I don't know of any evidence on that. Un- unfortunately, there's other, there's evidence of pesticides and, and, and other chemicals having other metabolic consequences, but I don't know of any implicating them in type one diabetes. Hey Ben, you, you mentioned, uh, you talked about when you were talking about adult onset diabetes, that term LADA, right? That's mm-hmm. the same thing, right? Yep. You, you mentioned something about, uh, people that develop it earlier, you mentioned teenage years. Can you clarify what you meant there? Like what's the difference? Yeah. 
Yeah. So usually people develop type one diabetes as a teenager or, you know, like around 10 or so and then into teenage years. So there's kind of that decade of, of almost 10 and then almost 20 where they typically develop type one. Um, that's, so that's true kind of classic type one. And then when someone develops type one later, and I don't know where the cutoff would be when we stop calling it type one and start calling it LADA or, or type 1.5, it really is just type one that started later in life. But I would say it's probably somewhere if it happens after their thirties or maybe their forties, then we call it the latent, um, autoimmune diabetes of adults. But again, that's just type one that started later than normal. And what is interesting to me is to note, so I am the director of the diabetes research lab here on, at, at BYU. And over the years, we will, my lab and my colleague's lab, Jeff Tessum, we will have students who have type one diabetes who want to volunteer in our labs to understand diabetes. Um, of the, I think, three students that volunteered in my lab over, over the 10 years I've been here that have type 1, all of them developed it while they were serving, while they were living out of overseas. Mm. Um, so these were people who had been used to one way of living. You know, their environment was very stable, eating the same foods in the same household. And then all three of these kids, of these students, Act, had diabetes settle in when they were living overseas. Very different environment, different stresses in life, different, very different diets. Um, and and I, I, I can't, to me, once again, that just, now I don't know, would it, would it have been that they never developed type 1? Um, I, I can't say that, of course, but it is just a remarkable coincidence that the moment their environment changed, and in these instances changed dramatically, they went to very different, um, very different countries eating a very different diet, it's fascinating to me that that's when the disease triggered, mm. not before, yeah. not, not in, the, in the 20 years before they went overseas. Interesting. Hey, Jack, yeah. I, I have one more question for Ben before we yeah, get on ahead. with the client's questions. Mm -hmm. I was at the airport the other day, and I was so sad. This, this, this little girl was sitting there with her mom and dad, and she had, maybe was four years old, and she probably weighed 80, 90 pounds, just morbidly obese. She was a little fussy, so the dad gave her a Coke. And the mom gave her a candy bar. I was there for maybe 45 minutes and she probably had three or four candy bars and a full rig or Coke. Um, what's, I mean, I was just, I wanted to go and just give her a big hug and say, here, mom and dad, you know, here's our card. And, and this poor little girl is going to have, if she doesn't already have diabetes, I mean, how early yeah. are these kids getting diabetes now? In fact, it's funny you say that. I believe the first reported incident of type 2 diabetes is four years old. So this isn't type one that I'm talking about. If a four-year-old developed type one, no, no bad an eyelash, although that would in fact be a little early, um, but developing type two, it, you, that's why they changed it. it. Type two used to be called adult onset diabetes. And then type one was called juvenile onset diabetes, but it doesn't work. When the kids are getting type two, you have to change the name. And then that drove the, um, the distinction of type one and type two. So yeah, I think the first, the earliest reported incident of clinical di type two diabetes is four years old. Uh, and that's, I, I hate to say that. Um, and I don't want this to change the topic, but that's on the parents. Yeah. It's hey so Ben, uh, this is kind of important and uh, we get, and I know this is, may seem like a really dumb way to ask this question, but people ask it of us all the time uh, that come and chat to us, uh, chat with us. And, and they just ask the simple question, can eating low carb reverse type 1 diabetes. And, and I remember one time years ago when we first started Insulin IQ, you wrote a blog post where I think you talked about some study 
where it wasn't reversed, but where the when people changed their lifestyle, was there some change in the body's ability, the the beta cells, or the beta? Yep, yep. So yes, there there were. So there are reports finding that um, with with significant dietary changes, there is this beta cell reversal, where the person starts to make new um, beta cells. Now, when I first put that together, that was, and in fact, still is. Uh, let me clarify. That report was looking at people with type two diabetes. And, and so this people will say, well, your, your beta cells just give out and they start to die in type two. That doesn't happen. Um, the beta cells just go quiet essentially, and you can bring them back to life and get them start working again. I, to be very, very clear, I'm unaware of any report that shows a similar effect in type one diabetes. I've not seen an evidence that you can start, um, taking a, a pancreas that's essentially devoid of beta cells and now recover it um, and start making them make new beta cells just through a low carb diet. Okay. Now, and I know I kind of hinted at that earlier in, with, with Rich's client who has diabetes 1.5 where, where she's not taking insulin and her glucose is getting better. I think in that case, there's probably just other moving parts. If we were talking about a true, no other exception type one diabetic, I don't think it's, I don't think it's accurate to say this is a person who can start making new beta cells. Um, but it's possible that a person thinks they have type one. They've been told they have type one when in reality they may have Modi and, and certain types of Modi, the genetic deficiency rather than the autoimmune disease, certain types of Modi can in fact be totally resolved through nothing but dietary changes. Okay. Good. Thanks so for clarifying that. I have a question. If a type one is nervous to do a low carb protocol because of all the hype that they hear and ketoacidosis and all this, um, wouldn't it make sense to just tell them if you're testing your glucose and you test your ketones, as long as you don't see them both go through the roof, you're fine. You know, if your ketones stay in a normal range or your glucose is doing good, you don't have to worry about it. That's what we'll look for, you know, for somebody. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, uh, of course, we have to be very delicate talking about this, but um, lest anyone take what we're saying and do something on their own. But I would think if someone is wearing an insulin pump, which is just giving them all their insulin the body needs because it's constantly sampling what the body needs, the, the Carly, just for the reasons you mentioned, I would think they're, they're – sh- I can understand the fear. Uh, well, I, I can try to understand the fear that someone would have of ketones because ketoacidosis is very, very consequential. But if you are giving yourself enough insulin to keep your glucose in check, um, then you are giving yourself enough insulin to also keep your ketones in check. Hey, Ben, real quick, I got I just this question. I've been. I just got to ask it. Why are physicians worried about mothers going on a ketogenic diet? producing ketones aren't they already producing ketones in pregnancy why is uh, that why is there so much fear around that now, now what do you do you mean do you mean a mother to be like a pregnant yeah, woman or yeah, a lactating pregnant, woman no a pregnant woman oh oh yeah well i i don't know i i know that there's no studies though um there i'm unaware of any studies in humans that have been that's just something even in rodents to be frank so i understand some reluctance and it's a reluctance that i share only because I, I literally don't know of a single manuscript that has ever looked at ketogenic diets in, in pregnancy. I, that's just the kind of study you probably couldn't get approval to do. Now, I know anecdotally, Rich, I know you and Carly, I know you guys have seen women do this and thrive. Um, 
and, and I think that has value. In fact, I think we need to document these kinds of things so we can share them more formally as case reports. But my reluctance in saying a pregnant woman can do this is simply born from the fact that there's no evidence on it one way or the other. Now, I would say also in the next breath, I can't think of a reason why it would be harmful. Um, that develop, it certainly wouldn't be harmful to the baby. I mean, assuming the mom isn't getting into ketoacidosis, which is not going to be easy in pregnancy because she's more insulin resistant. Um, but even, so, but if she were in ketosis, there's in, in rat studies, and, and I have no reason to think the human um, baby, um, developing baby is going to be any different. In, when it, metabolically speaking, the similarities between rats and humans are very, very tight. Of course, other differences abound. But the developing fetus uses more ketones than any other tissue in mom's baby. And we know the newborn baby is in an almost constant state of ketosis. A newborn baby will get into deeper ketosis in two hours than an adult will get into in two days of fasting. So it's, uh, there's, there's very little reason to think ketones are harmful to the fetus or the newborn. In fact, there's every reason to think ketones are beneficial. But I can understand the reluctance to say, oh yeah, you're pregnant, go on a ketogenic diet to help with your gestational diabetes, simply because there's no study that, that I could defend, that I could use as a defense. But again, I don't know of a reason why it wouldn't be help, helpful. Ben, we've got, uh, we've got a lot of questions. I'd like to get to some of these. We may have to uh, kind of go through them fairly quickly because there's some be really quick. good ones here. Rapid fire. Uh, but, but, but before we do, take one minute, Ben, and we have a viewer in Portugal who says, Ben is my hero. Can he wish me a happy birthday? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> that, that's so funny. Just last week, honest to goodness, we were looking at flights. We're so desperate to take a trip. And I thought to myself, hey, Portugal's like the closest area of, of Europe to the U.S. Maybe that's a cheaper flight was just looking at flights to Lisbon, Portugal. Oh my goodness. I wish I could be there to wish you happy birthday in person. Maybe next year. Okay. Great, happy great. birthday. I happy, think that's birthday. happy birthday. That's awesome. Uh, from Stephen, how does injectable synthetic insulin compare to natural made? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is, it, it compares very, very well. Um, I do have to say it's a credit to just science that we have insulin molecules that we've just tweaked enough to have it act like normal insulin, like a rapid fast acting. And we have some that can do a long acting that takes a little longer to clear and, and help it's helpful because then you don't have to inject as much, but yeah, essentially um, it's, there's no difference. Okay. Uh, from Osra in type two diabetes is the pancreas damaged irreversibly. No, no, a thousand times. No. That's what I thought you'd say. Um, from Sue, this is the first I've heard of LADA, and it could be caused by poor diet. It's not a question, but... Yeah, well, and let me... Um, I, I think it's appropriate if it were a question, because I don't... I want to be very careful right. that while I am presenting this, this paradigm that ver every auto autoimmunity I'm aware of is triggered by some environmental stimulus... And I just don't know why this would be an exception. So I strongly believe type 1.5 would be some environmental trigger, which often would be something you're consuming. But I, I, I say that with a little asterisk, you know, th there could be exceptions. Okay. Uh, from Tracy, this is a little bit unrelated, but still related. My A1C is 5.3, but my insulin is 28 and has been higher. 
are these telltale signs of diabetes or prediabetes. Wow. What, yeah, that is awesome. So I'm assuming I wish that I knew what the units were on that insulin because if, if we're talking about 28 picomoles, um, then that's a wonderful level. But because she's citing A1C as a percent, um, that makes me think that this is kind of American-based, and so that it's probably 28 in microunits per mil, and that's very high. I would say that um, you are apparently keeping your glucose in check. Um, in fact, it's almost a, like a perfect example of insulin resistance where your glucose is staying normal, but you need um, six times more insulin than healthy to keep it normal. But I would also add um, that, remember, when you're looking at A1C, it's you're also looking at how long red blood cells live and that it's entirely possible that your A1C is normal because you have red blood cells that die much more quickly. Maybe you're a little iron deficient because if you're turning over your population of red blood cells more quickly, if they die sooner and you're replacing them sooner, they simply don't have time to get glycosylated and your HbA1c would be artificially low or in other words, a false negative. Hope that helps, Tracy. This is a good time for us to remind our audience Insulin IQ is not your doctor. Dr. Bickman is not your doctor, even yep. though he has DR in front of his name. Yeah. <laughs> Always consult with your own physician. Well, once again, I, I think it is terrible that physicians ever hijack the word doctor. Doctor means teacher, for, he for heaven's sake. Um, that's literally what it means. So what we ought to use is the terms professor and physician, and then doctor has just been so, di so diluted. Um, but doctor means teacher. So if anyone gets to invoke the word doctor, Right. <laughs> Not that I care. I honestly don't care. I'm going to give Dr. Barry some crap about that. Yeah. <laughs> it's physician Barry, you mean. Yeah. Hey, uh, also, little chat on our chat bubble from uh, Carrie. Carrie's actually one of our coaches at Insulin IQ. I think she's bringing up a good point here. Let me just read what she said. Going back to the, the pregnant uh, coached client that I think this is the one that Rich should refer to, it's only fair for us to let pregnant women know that not all doctors feel that way. Um, mm -hmm. and there, there also has to be the, the contribution of the addiction that they have. So, yeah, we want to we, we make sure that's clear. Nobody misinterprets what we're talking about here, right, guys? Hey, I've, got, I've got two OBs, OBs that come to see me, and they just love our program. Yeah, yeah. Send everybody to us. So we don't mean to yeah. make a, a super broad stroke on, on that, what we were talking about. Uh, Rich and Carly, any other specific questions related to the topic today from you two? Um, can you talk a little bit about the honeymoon phase that people mention? And yeah. and could there be, I know you've already kind of addressed, you can't really reverse an autoimmune diabetes, but yeah, talk about, a little uh, bit well, about hey, that. Carly, it's such a, I, I almost feel like I have to say that. But there's, again, there's a little part of me that thinks, yeah, but there's an environmental trigger. And what if you take your finger off the trigger? Right. Can and you reverse it. And, so and I, there's I, that I, honeymoon I, phase. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So the honeymoon phase is when a type 1 diabetic um, has been diagnosed. They've had this hyperglycemic event. And, and yet the beta cells are sort of mounting a comeback because it is a never-ending attack. The pancreas, I, I believe, I, I'm almost certain this is the case, uh, but I, I should have looked up this to confirm before stating it. So I'm speculating a little, but I think it's the case that in type one diabetes, the beta cells are constantly trying to come back, but the immune system is constantly destroying them the moment they come back. And that is why a type one diabetic can have 
you know, very, very low levels of insulin um, because there's always this effort, you know, not enough to, to control glucose, but it's just because there's always this effort of the beta cells to make their comeback. And so it, I, I'd like to think, I'd like to think that in that honeymoon phase, when the person has had an insulin deficiency in a hyperglycemic time, and that's when they get diagnosed as type one diabetic. And then the problem comes, it goes away. The beta cells make their comeback and then we kill them again. And then they make their comeback and we kill them again. And then eventually they just stop and they've lost the war after having won a few little battles um, in the time before that. It's tempting to think um, that perhaps we can remove the stimulus that's driving the autoimmunity, perhaps by changing lifestyle, changing diet specifically. And, and that, that helps the beta cells make some comeback. I just, I just don't know of a study that confirms it. What we do know is that a type one diabetic who cuts their carbs has to give themselves remarkably less insulin, you know, and, and Rich, I know you've seen some of these guys, right. Where they're giving themselves like a hundred units a day, then they go down to like five or just something that's ridiculous. Oh, yeah. I had a, had a, had a, a mother who just had her baby. Dr. Barry sent her over to me. This is like six, seven years ago. So this was a little bit edgy at that time because mm-hmm. we hadn't done it before. And uh, she was, I mean, she was really fit, healthy. Um, she was, I think she was taking about 80 to 90 units a day. And she was down to a basal rate of about five or six units a day. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, she was going on fasted runs. Uh, I mean, she was just, she had a wonderful pregnancy. Her third baby was wonderful pregnancy through, she did the program straight through all the pregnancy or at least the last pregnancy. It was amazing. Um, she just, I mean, she was just couldn't thank us enough. I mean, it yeah, well, freed, that, her. That it freed her from that, 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 that insulin noose that she was, yeah. she was yeah. under. Yeah. I think there's an important takeaway there and something I like to emphasize that whatever diet a woman has incorporated to get pregnant it's probably a diet that is suitable to maintain the pregnancy. Yeah, hey, ben, I got a question. This is a broad stroke, but when I go out and market to physicians and, 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 and physicians have referred to me, they're generally general practitioners, family physicians. Uh, I have a couple in, in, internal medicine physicians. I have never had any luck with endocrinologists. Do you, <sighs> do you have any comment on that or should we just leave that alone well no i i that that's a good question and i'm not i'm not sure why in fact i would think i would think that this appeal um of 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 the relevance of insulin would would sound like the gospel of of science i mean that would make that would be better news to them than any other physician because it puts endocrinology you know the study of hormones right at the center of these disorders so i would i would i would have hoped that they'd be the most enthusiastic um, believers that they hear the message and they're converted, you know, immediately. But I, 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 I'm sad to hear that they aren't. And I can't think why, Um, maybe just because um, the average endocrinologist is so thoroughly steeped in, in the, in the, the, the idea that diabetes is just a disease of too much glucose. And so it must be solved by putting more insulin in the system that it's just harder for them to overcome that view. Yeah. Well, we uh, hey, go ahead, Carly. Can, can I say one last thing? You bet. Um, I just want to say that it is so cool to work with diabetics, both type one and type two, and see them as they lower their insulin, not just have to take less medication um, and pump themselves full of less um, insulin, but also improve so many different aspects of their lives. One of the things that's really cool to watch is, um, you know, I've had a few people who 
get angry when they have these crazy highs and lows and their families are always on edge because they don't know is dad high is dad low what what's his state of mind and that goes away for so many people and they become you know i've had one person tell me this saved my marriage because it just changes their ability to control their emotions and you know as well as many other things in life yeah. i've seen so many cool stories so Thank you for listening to The Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code, the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.